0: And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul my father seeks to kill you. Therefore be on your guard in the morning. Stay in the secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you, and if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father, and said to him, Let not the king sing against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hands, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel you saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before." And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. Then David fled from Niath and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David, because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boys, boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Would you please remain standing a a while longer as we just commit this time to the Lord? Heavenly Father, this is um, a strange story. Um, It seems we were so, there's so much distance, Lord, from our lives and the story and We don't want to always come to you, Lord, just asking for things. We want you, not just what you can give us. We want you. And whatever that is, Lord, if you would call us to suffer with you, it would be our honor to suffer with you. But this morning, Lord, we do ask one thing, that you would soften our hearts, that you would show us how this ancient story is to shape us and to see you, that we would love you. Our hearts are hard, and we just ask that you would make them soft. We need help. Make them soft, Lord, that we would see you, because we want you. Not what you can give us, but you. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. You're just now joining us. My name's Ronnie. I'm one of the pastor here at Denver Prez. Um, We last semester, just prior to Advent, we started a sermon series on 1 Samuel, and we've called it Looking for a King, Searching for a King. It very much shows the the rise and ascent of David. That's what 1 Samuel's about. And so today, we're going to pick back up in 1 Samuel, and we'll be in 1 Samuel until, um, until about Lent, and then we'll start a new sermon series. Uh, let me begin today's uh, teaching uh, by saying that Christians are unique in the category that we use fundamentally to describe our relationship with God. So I mean so get your brains around this like God the the, the, the deity from the great beyond, the, the holy one, the, the omniscient, the all-knowing, all-powerful God, that one. Christians describe our relationship with him uh, as friendship. No one else does that. Friendship with God. And friendship with God shapes friendship with one another. And so this morning, uh, I, I want to take some time to think about that. Spiritual friendship is a concept that has, by by and large, uh, been lost on the church. I mean, we know how to attend a, a Sunday service, of course, and we know how to do service projects and so forth, but we don't largely have any meaningful connection to God and to one another. You know, lots of people, of course, will have faith in Jesus, right? They have faith, and yet that doesn't necessarily translate or make anything noticeably different in our lives. And what's the problem? I would suggest it's that we don't know how to have true friendships. And let me take this further. As a modern society, we're not even convinced that deep friendship is necessary, right? Like, just think about your fathers. How many of our fathers have truly close, intimate, vulnerable friendships? There's, um, there's a meme jo- uh, that brings to mind, there's a, it's like a picture, one of those ancient cartoon pictures of Jesus. And he's sitting there, on a, sitting on a rock. It's white Jesus, of course, right? You know, with long, handsome straight hair. And he's talking to his disciples. And the meme says, everyone overlooks Jesus's biggest miracle, and that's having 12 close guy friends in his 30s, <laughs> right? <clears throat> Friendships are, are lost on us. And this is alarming, the ancient writers, if you can think about like Aristotle, like Aristotle wrote extensively on friendship. If you've ever had to read like Nico, uh, Nicomachean Ethics, that's like one of its principal works. Um, ethics, if, you're, if, this, if that's a new word to you, it's this discipline that considers how to become a good human being, how to relate to self-world city, how to bring out goodness, ethics. So Aristotle devotes the majority of his manual on ethics to friendship. Get your mind around that. So for the ancients, Aristotle or like Cicero, who's responding to Aristotle, uh, uh, they used friendship as this main category for explaining ethics. They believed that your friendships shape who you are. In the fourth century, you have like St. Augustine or Augustine. He was even more explicit when he suggested that we are perfected as humans by our love for other humans. He says, the more a society becomes a society of friends, the more perfect it becomes as a society. He's right in the fourth century. Now, unlike Aristotle, like Augustine's writing as a theologian, but where did he get this idea? And it's this theme of friendship. And it is at the heart of the message of the entire Bible. Right, like, like, God is relational. He has, f- from eternity, existed in this loving friendship within the Godhead, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally existing in perfect communion and perfect friendship and love. And he has created us, the God, God has created us in his image, and therefore we are uniquely able to relate to him with friendship and love. You know, Genesis 2, if you go to the very beginning of the Bible, the second chapter, uh, it provides us a picture of what life was designed to be like. So you have Adam and Eve. They're enjoying what? A perfect friendship with God and one, with one another. And we know that that friendship very quickly was spoiled by rebellion, by betrayal, by sin. And then in the very next chapter, chapter 3... We get this sense of like aching nostalgia of what has been lost, and it's evoked by this description of like God walking in the garden. You know, like God is depicted as walking in the garden, and the implication is, is that God had a habit of taking daily walks with his friends, and then one day that peace is interrupted because he gets up, and he's like, "It's time for our walk," and he says. Adam, Eve, where are you? Where are you? That friendship was broken. The rest of the Bible, and this is a terrific way to understand the whole plot line of the Bible, is God's plan to restore that broken friendship. And he would do it through his promised one, his son, the son of God, the Messiah Jesus. God's plan of salvation is designed not only then to restore our vertical relationship with God, but also our horizontal relationship with one another through loving friendships. God calls us to himself, not as individuals, but as members of this new community. And so in the Bible, one of the primary ways to describe salvation or to know who belongs to God is, is God calling you his friend. Isn't that something very unique to our tradition? We strongly believe that the core of the Bible's teaching shows that friendship is not optional. It's essential to our God-given humanity. Living friendless lives is both a rejection of God's purpose and a dehumanizing tragedy. We were designed for friendships, and without it, our lives are disfigured, and they're lonely. In the words of like, Basil the Great, he says, um, this is sixth century, without friendship, he's talking about life without friendship. He says, how will you give evidence of your compassion if you've cut yourself off from association with other persons? How will you exercise long-suffering if no one contradicts you? Whose feet will you wash, and to whom will you minister? without friends. So friendships are the only way to truly be human. And this theme, you guys, is not just this cute concept for a sermon series for marketing purposes. It is profoundly theological and crucially necessary. And so this morning, I'm going to explore the primary example of friendship that's offered to us in the Bible. And we read the, the, the line share of those three important uh, chapters, 1 Samuel 18 through 20. So for 3,000 years, David and Jonathan's friendship has been the model par excellence of spiritual friendship. So we desperately, as modern Denverites, we desperately need this ancient story to help us understand what it is and how it's really different than the concept of friendship that's offered to us by our modern culture. Because what we have, it's not working. Every index for happiness produced by sociologists show that we are growing increasingly unhappy even while our affluence is increasing. We need a union that makes all other unions Whether romantic unions or civil unions or work unions, whatever they are, we need a union that will anchor all others. And the Bible teaches us that the union of friendship is the answer. So the story we just heard gives us a glimpse of that kind of friendship. So we're going to explore it and just heads up, um, I wrote a sermon and then afterwards I cut it in half (laughs) because I had so much to say. So you're going to hear half of a sermon today. I'm going to take two weeks, actually, on this passage. So if you're um, familiar with the Old Testament, you'll remember uh, that uh, before David was King David, he was just that kid, the ruddy kid who heaved a stone and at the giant Goliath's head, took him out, killed him. He saved Israel from their arch rivals, their nemesis, the Philistines. And so David was enlisted into King Saul's army, who is the current king of Israel. And as he's serving Saul, he's incredibly successful, right? Saul kills thousands, but David, tens of thousands. And the problem was, and what we saw and heard up from our text today, is that it made King Saul rabidly jealous. And David's very best friend is King Saul's son, Jonathan, And Jonathan is the prince of Israel. He is the heir apparent. He is the, the Prince William, right? He's the next in line. And Jonathan and David love each other very much. And Jonathan learns that God has called David, not him, to be the next king. And Jonathan believes it. He receives it from the Lord. And he, Jonathan risks Everything to make sure that his friend gets the crown that he thinks he's he's due. So we're going to explore that under this one idea that friendship is powerful. Friendship is powerful. Next week we're going to look at how it's covenantal, but today spiritual friendship is powerful. So in this story that we just heard between David and Jonathan, it's important to remember. Uh, that the most powerful person in Israel, King Saul, wanted to kill David. We saw that repeated multiple times in our passage. Now, in the ancient Near East, there are, um, if you could just think about like ancient canon or the ancient corpus of history, there are virtually no stories, virtually no stories where the will of the king is thwarted. You certainly wouldn't tell that within your own story. Those stories don't make it into print. And yet here we are. The Hebrew Bible makes sure to include a story of a Hebrew king's will being thwarted. Because in those sort of tyrannical cultures, the king gets what the king wants. He always gets his way. But here we are. In this Bible, we're given the story. It's given in the context of the monarchy of Israel. And what we're seeing is how friendship has the power to overcome those crazy odds. So time and time again, it was Jonathan's love and loyalty that protected David. That's what you see. One example, you'll look right in the middle of your passage in chapter 19, verse 1. Look there. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all of his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place. Hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. He is siding. Jonathan is siding with David. Very risky. For the original audience, those three verses that we just read would have been wildly surprising. So, like, what has the power to neutralize evil? A friendship wields more power than a king. <laughs> this explains a very high vision of friendship that kind of runs throughout the, what I'll call Hebrew wisdom literature. Friendship, it wasn't Aristotle who's was speaking about this, the Bible itself. So one example, and like in Proverbs eighteen twenty-four, uh, this is what a father would teach his son or a mother, uh, his do- uh, her daughter. It says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, the implication is that a friend has the potential to be more intimate than even a brother. That's countercultural wisdom, especially to the original audience in Israel, because it is offered and given in a context, in a culture that is completely centered on and organized around the family unit. So it's very subversive, and so what does this mean? What does this mean that without, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother in that time of ruin? What it means is that in the most difficult moments of your life, like when your child is sick or is making really bad choices, or when, like, your loneliness is so cute, it's starting to play tricks on your mind. When you're in the middle of, like, a work deal that you really need to come through to pay the bills and it is on the verge of flopping. When a romantic relationship that you're really hoping that would uh, work through, when you're seeing it start to collapse and dissolve right before your eyes. Or when you get a diagnosis that your body is betraying you and it's bad. When your fears are so acute, you can hardly shake it and leave the house. And all of these hardest moments, we need something deeper than blood. We need friendship. David and Jonathan's friendship is meant to demonstrate the unique power that friendship has to neutralize deeply painful circumstances. Modern sociologists and behavioral scientists are confirming what the Bible's been teaching for 3,000 years. You might have uh, heard of the book written by Henry Cloud. Uh, he writes a book called The Law of Happiness. Uh, and he's, in it, he cites the study where, poor, poor creatures, <laughs> uh, for all you like animal lovers, just Give me a break here, but I'm just repeating what they they did. All right, so they they took this monkey, right, this cute little monkey, and they placed him in a cage for a clinical study, and uh, they measured the cortisol levels of the monkey just to kind of get a baseline. And then they started traumatizing the monkey with like loud sounds and like lights and just like, really scaring the monkey and terrorized it. And so after they terrorized it, they checked the monkey's cortisol levels again to see where it was at. And of course, it risen significantly. But then the scientists, they find uh, the monkey's friend, right, a second monkey, and they add that monkey to the cage. And now they're being both terrorized together And then afterwards, they measure the cortisol levels once again. When the two monkeys were terrorized together, what do you think the tests showed? The cortisol levels were split in half. The friend shared shared the trauma, you see. Now, the circumstances, the lights and the sounds, the circumstances were the exact same, and yet there was one difference, friendship. Friendship. Friendship has the power to neutralize, relativize very dark, difficult moments in your life. If that's true for monkeys, how much more for humans who are incurably relational? You know, if this is the case, why in the world don't we give ourselves to friendship? Why, why are we so hesitant to organize our lives around our spiritual friends? I want to explore a few of our hesitations. There's two features in this text that we find virtually impossible to understand, and it's because of our like cultural dispositions or cultural presuppositions. The first thing I want you to notice are the verses that open and close our passage that describe David and Jonathan from beginning to end? So the very first, look back in your Bibles, the very first verse in our passage in 1 Samuel 18, 1. It says, "As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of David was knit to the soul of David. Uh, uh, soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul." And then the very last verse and. Chapter 20, verse 41. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face on the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. The first problem I want to bring to your attention is that we can barely read those verses without suspicion. Friendship has been pushed to the margins of contemporary life because our society has taught us to project eroticism into like every relationship and consequently, we're afraid of it. So if you can think of like Sigmund Freud, he's kind of known as the father of modern psychoanalysis. Uh, an- analysis, analysis. Um, he, uh, you know, if you can think of like the, saying like a Freudian slip. It's like where you say something and it could be interpreted in like a sexual way and they're like, oh, that's a Freudian slip. As if to say, oh, that's what is deep in your soul. That's what really, what you really believe is trying to find its way out in your normal. Like that's what a Freudian slip. So Freud suggested that all relationships at base evolve eroticism. Every relationship, friends, romantic, parental, work, and that that desire for sex is the secret truth of every relationship and and the problem is is as a culture we have completely accepted that premise without critically engaging it and it has spoiled intimacy in our friendships and and to make matters worse like we live in a hypersexualized culture that has given us this unquenchable appetite for eroticism instead of having an appetite for friendship, right? One uh, public intellectual, Wesley Hill, who I've benefited a lot from in the sermon, he writes this, he says, "'With male friendship, where certain previous eras might have seen two people who merely admired each other and wanted to spur each other on to greater heights of maturity and virtue,' In the modern West, we're attuned to the possibility of an underlying subconscious erotic attraction. And that mythology contributes to the anxiety we feel about friendship today. See, the sexualization of every part of our culture has made spiritual friendship, the one that's offered, unoffered to us in the Bible, implausible. It's made it awkward. Like, you know? It, 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 the eroticism of our culture is so ever present that it's become a fundamental way in which we identify ourselves. Like our identity is is almost through the lens of our attractions. It's wild. Never in the history of the world has that been the case, but here we are. So it's made really intimate friendship awkward, unfortunately. Here's a second problem, and I sort of hinted at it earlier. The, this story unapologetically celebrates the bond between David and Jonathan, not David and Michael, who's David's wife. David's wife is present in the story. We heard about her. She's nice. She's helpful. But David's marital bond with her is not the bond that is celebrated. So when John, in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1, Jonathan is going to die. Um, spoiler alert. Um this is, this is what David says. I want you to hear David's words at his friend's um, funeral. He says, How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of a woman. Now listen, this story is not lowering the value of marriage, but it is elevating the value of friendship. Historically speaking, you guys, friendship has occupied a place of honor, a place of privilege in the Christian tradition, particularly because both our Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul, who has penned most of the New Testament, they were single, And so that means that their most meaningful and intimate relationships, right, were friends. St. Ambrose, who would be like a mentor to St. Augustine, he's like this bishop figure in Milan, um, he says in 390, in 390, a friend is a sharer of your soul and your souls should so mingle that they become one. Your souls should so mingle that they should become one. Does that sound like marriage? Of course it does because you were modern denverites. That is friendship. That is friendship. And our marriages are failing at an alarming rate because we don't know how to be friends. So I have the privilege right now of I have four different pre-marriage counseling sessions going on with four couples that are preparing to be married. If I could like, summarize what I'm trying to do in pre-marriage counseling, it's teaching them how to be friends because that union is more important. It is the union that will, will anchor their union as a lover. And in fact, if it doesn't work, the marriage will fail or be loveless. In our modern culture, we would just never tell stories like Jonathan and David's story because our collective imagination could just doesn't, can't conceive of that kind of friendship. Our modern stories, right, would retell, if, if we had to redo, you know, if Hollywood wanted to redo this, make a movie, they would definitely highlight Michael and would say, hey, look at the support of a spouse, a sacrificial spouse, which is all good and well, but you're missing the point, right? Subconsciously, our modern stories with their presuppositions are actually dethroning the place of privilege, of friendship, of friendship. And how did we get these ideas that make friendship less valuable than marriage? Uh, One uh, theologian, he's an Australian, his name's Benjamin Myers, he he notes that the mythology of Darwinian evolution has actually worked to obscure uh, friendship. He says this, in the evolutionary worldview... The meaning of every human activity lies in its origin. Everything is traced back to some basic instinct, some survival function. It's easy to view marriage, family, politics, and work along these lines, but friendship disappears since it is not a natural bond. In other words, we have culturally elevated those relationships that appear to promote our survival. But friendship is free, and often it is personally costly and anti-evolutionary. Friendship means self-negation for the sake of the other. In order to have meaningful intimacy and vulnerability, it's costly. So Darwinian evolution creates machines that pass on their genetic code. But friendship forms humans that pass on dignity and meaning and value. Okay, that's my first point. And therefore, that's all I'm gonna say for today. So would you allow me to summarize and conclude? Uh, The story between David and Jonathan emphasizes that you and I um, are designed for friendship. Friendship is indeed the primary instrument that God uses to make us fully human. God's plan of salvation is to restore that vertical friendship with God and therefore create horizontal friendships with one another as we journey in this life together. Friendship has the power to neutralize hard things in our life and to make us fully human. And you need to believe that. And I know that giving to yourself in a friendship could sound scary or risky. And so I want to conclude the sermon with one final thought. Because how can we be sure that friendship has the power to do that? How can we be sure? And here's how. And if you've heard nothing else, hear this. The beauty of Jonathan's friendship, right? Prince Jonathan, Saul's son, the beauty of Jonathan's friendship, it's an echo of another son, another prince who also gave up his crown so that another could live. And because of his loyalty, Jonathan ultimately gives up his life for David, his friend. And if it wasn't for Jonathan, David would not have survived, right? If David never lived, his descendant, Jesus, our Savior, would not have come. And it was Jesus Christ who did the same thing as Jonathan. See, understanding Jonathan's story helps us understand our Savior. Jesus gave up his crown, and he risked his life to secure the salvation of his friends. That is... The core of the whole gospel message that you had a friend who gave up everything, his crown, to have you and to save you. If this sounds abstract, let me just illustrate this for you. It was a few years ago now, but it was at the British Air Show in Whitehaven uh, this What I'm about to describe to you is actually, I think it's on YouTube. You can watch this. as a true story. But there's these two friends, Mike French and Wayne Shorthouse, and they were performing at this air show a stunt with their parachutes. Uh, in front of a large audience, they were performing this maneuver that's called the Stack Maneuver. And it's where uh, these two guys jump out of a plane... And they both pull their parachutes, and one is actually on top of the other, right on top of it, almost as if he's walking on the parachute um, it's while they're, like, floating down together. It's incredibly difficult and interesting to, to watch. But on this day, the worst thing happened. When Mike French deployed his parachute, it came out, but it came out in knots. And he is falling like a rock to the ground without a parachute, to his death. And his friend, Wayne Shorthouse, noticed, because they both jumped out together, what was happening. And man, Shorthouse does the most en- courageous thing. Mid air, he took those knotty cords of his friend, And he took those parachute cords and he began to wrap them around his own body and tie them together. Extremely dangerous. And by tying the cords to himself, he is sealing his own fate. He loved his friend. He was not going to leave this accident alive knowing that he could have done something. So he said, you're not going to die unless we die together. And I'm not going to be saved Unless we're saved together. And when that cord was sufficiently tied around his body, Shorthouse deployed his parachute, and the two of them are united by one parachute. Now they're still falling hard because the parachute could not adequately sustain two people. there was risk, and so they're the best they can maneuvering it to the sea. And there they are, heading for the sea, and they fall in, both extremely hard and. The the surface area of water becomes extremely hard at a certain speed, but there they were, they fall in and the crowd is silent and two heads emerge from the water. Friendship prevailed. Do you understand that? Christ's salvation secures our friendship with God. His friendship prevails if you were a friend of God it was because Christ bound himself to you as you're falling hard to your death and he takes your knotty cords and wraps it around himself and he wept for you and he gave up his crown for you took a crown of thorns instead of one of gold and he gave you an eternal friend He makes you an eternal friend through a covenant. And when he died, you died with him. And when he rose, you rose with him. Because you are friends. That's what friends do. And Christ was the friend par excellence. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. And through Christ, we are friends of God. And I need you to believe that. Friendship with God is the thing to be pursued among all other things. Do not sleep, eat, or even take a next breath without
0: pursuing friendship with God first. Amen? Amen.